Welcome to episode 51 of Reading Between the Reels. I'm your host, Craig Dickinson. Tonight, I'm joined once again by special guest co-host Jeff McGee. Thanks for being here, Jeff. It is my pleasure. I'm very excited about tonight, even more excited than I was last time to talk about Alias. Well, well, this time you get to talk about an actual movie, which yes. I know that was one of the <laughs> one of the perks. No, I get to talk about a movie. Yes. This is not a movie. This is a movie. Yes. Tonight we are talking about Die Hard, which is 34 years old somehow. I didn't I didn't understand how that that's a that's a thing because it's timeless for me. Love it this is, movie absolutely. so much. So, uh, Jeff, why don't you start us off? What are some of your other overall thoughts on Die Hard? Well, besides the fact that it's an almost perfect film, the script, I think, is perfect uh, because every little thing gets paid off, which we'll talk about. Uh, There's only one part of the movie that keeps it from being perfect for me, and we'll probably talk about it at some point. But, I mean, it's a legitimate classic. I don't think any I don't know anyone who would argue that. And it's truly one of the best action films ever made. Its reputation is well-earned and, dare I say, even underrated. Because as an action film, like I said, it's simply one of the greatest. But one of the reasons it works is because we have compelling and three-dimensional characters and real stakes and drama that is relatable to everyone. And even the smallest characters in the film have an arc. And it's just it, 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 it's, it's amazing. It is a work of art. Those are my overall thoughts. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It is, um, you know, it's a movie. It's funny. It, it, it had low expectations when it, when it was released. And I remember being familiar with Bruce Willis from Moonlighting. And so I was also, I, I was a naysayer early on. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I was like, it's the guy from Moonlighting, an action movie. And this, this is going to be horrible. And I'm so happy to have been proven wrong because it, it's, it is amazing. You know, the critics finally they've, they've got on board after it had a bit of a slow burn, too. It didn't like ever was never the number one film that year, but just consistently made it, money. It stayed in theaters for for from weeks, weeks and months. And yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I remember it came out. I'm trying to remember what came out the weekend that it came that that it was released. I was more interested in whatever that was. And then I saw Die Hard probably a year or two later. And I was like, oh. Oh, this is what I've been missing. And then yeah. as this is one of those movies that you sort of you you can age with it as you age, you you it's like back to the future. As you get older, you appreciate different things about it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, this this is also mem- memorable for me because I think it the DVD release, the silver cases was one of the greatest DVDs ever. Oh, yeah. I bought that set when it came out. I paid like 100 bucks for it. Yeah, ridiculously. Yeah. Do you do you remember or have you did you dig into the part where you could actually edit the Takagi execution scene? I did not. I don't think I knew that was a thing. It's a thing. You could actually go through. And I think that was one of the things that really sparked my interest in how how movies are made, because they you got to play with different different cuts, um, uh, di- different takes, rather, and splice together that scene. And it basically any way you, you wanted to do it, you did. They were in order. You but you get to pick like five or six different options and and go all the way through, which was amazing, just to get to see how that worked. Yeah, I was more interested in the commentary tracks uh, at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. And who's on, J- John McTiernan on those? I'm assuming. Uh, McTiernan, I and I think even Bruce Willis was on one of them. I think there were two or three tracks. It's like McTiernan on, on one, and then I think uh, maybe Jan Debont, yeah. the cinematographer, was on one as well. Or they may have been on one together, and, and like there, then there were a couple of the actors were on one. I want to say it was one that was kind of stitched together. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on the iTunes release, 
if the same tracks are on the iTunes release. I may have to check that out. They're very informative. A lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, another, the last thing I want to mention before we kind of dig into the uh, the cinematic aspects is that it's based on a book, which you always see it that <laughs> comes up in the credit, which is hilarious. Um, uh, Roderick Thorpe, which is Roderick. a great name. Yep, it's a fantastic name. And and uh, one of the, the fun little trivia things about this is that they technically had to offer the role to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> right? 67 years old or something at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he turned it down, thank goodness, because he'd made The Detective, which was the first book in the series. And so it's kind of a sequel to a Sinatra movie. Uh, and it starts this whole trend of, you know, diehard movies have always been like repurposed out of something else. Uh, right. And that's just kind of a fun little it, it's a trend that starts here and then just continues to to move forward. So uh, have, let no, go ahead. Have you have you seen all of the sequels? I've not seen Live Free or Die Hard. No, I've not seen A Good Day to Die Hard. I've seen Live Free or Die Hard. I've not seen the fifth one. So I've yeah, no, I bought the I bought the five pack when it came on Blu-ray and I, I think died I too, but I still haven't watched the last one. I think I'd I seen Yeah, I think I'd seen it once before and I'm you know, my my appreciation of Jai Courtney varies. Uh I like to love him in, in Suicide Squad. Um mm-hmm. that's that's about it. But it you know, it it's if you look at it as a cartoon, it's actually pretty enjoyable. There are some some funny stuff, there's some funny lines in there, it, the action's way over the top. It's and this is a thing that you know I think we'll talk about too is how you know Die Hard starts as a pretty grounded action movie as far as action movies go, mm-hmm. and then it just progressively gets sillier, and so by the time you get to the fifth one, it it's very much like the movie that it kind of broke away, broke the mold of you know those '80s over the top action movies. This was kind of a more grounded take, and now we're full circle back to that. So it's it's got some good stuff. I I would recommend watching it. I think I think you'll enjoy some of it if you go in with the expectation of this is going to be silly. Right. And I'll, I'll have to do that. It, I mean, I'm one of the few people that I, I actually really enjoy live free or die hard. I, the first four, I, I enjoy almost equally. Um, I, I just, but again, for different reasons, but uh, I, I'm one of the few people that, that just almost stood up and cheered when he took down a helicopter with a police car <laughs> in live yeah, free I, or die hard. That, that movie's got some great stuff in there. It really does. Yeah, the elevator scene with the you know the Ford Escape in the elevator shaft is <laughs> yes. there's another one. Yeah, it's it's silly, but it's amazing. Um, but this movie, Die Hard but One, yes, no, that's fine. It's all Die Hard related. Had some really interesting cinematography that I think I'd always known, like on a subconscious level, that it was great that way, but I hadn't really paid attention to it until this viewing. And I'm curious what you what you pulled out from composition, color, and or camera work. Well, everything it's on the one hand, it's very classic Hollywood because it's you know, all, all of the all the all the compositions are very, you know, very uh, I won't say standard, but they're very they're just very classic, very, very cinematic. They speak the language of cinema that we all know. But you're absolutely right. The the camera does some really interesting stuff. You're almost always almost always seeing it from McLean's perspective. Uh, if, if If there are two characters in a room and he can't hear them, we as the audience most of the time can't hear them or at least not the entire conversation it'll push into the room and then we'll hear them, which is, is less about the cinematography. But, um, the thing that I love about the cinematography is the, and the camera work is the fact that throughout it all, you never lose the sense of where you are in the building or in the room. And they did a really good job of that. There's a, if you, if you notice the recurring motif of the, the girly calendar that he, he goes by and he makes reference to every time he goes by, 
that was brilliant to me because it let you know that the by the end of the movie, you know the route he took around the building. And the way that they used the camera to, again, there, there are times when it's very kinetic, it's moving a lot. There are times when it's static and we're just seeing things play out in almost real time. But uh, you never forget where you are and you never you never lose true north in in the movie. And I credit the I credit Jan Debant, the cinematographer, for a lot of that. Um, and for, for being willing to, it, it almost does have, I say classic Hollywood, but it almost does have sort of a European flair to it, which would make sense because we have, you know, a, a cinematographer who's not from the United States, not from Hollywood. And we get, we get a few angles here and there that we don't normally get that. And it seems a little off, which I think is good because it keeps the audience on their toe, on their toes. And as far as the color, it's it's very appropriate and effective. What I love about the color is that with, when the movie starts, you've almost got this Michael Bay gauzy sunset look to it. And as the sun goes down, we get these really cold and sharp night shots that take us along for the ride. Everything is a little little colder and a little cooler. And you, you see a lot of like blacks and silvers and whites as opposed to those warmer colors that we saw at the beginning. As sort of night descends on the city, night is also descending on this group that's inside as well. And it just it's it always um, it just always strikes me. And and I just I, like I said, I feel like I'm sort of being taken along for the ride. By the camera work alone. Yeah, it's it's super engrossing in that way. And I'm glad you pulled out the color in that particular way. I, I had that as well um, with that kind of golden sunset, kind of almost yeah. almost golden, golden hour, uh, which there's also a practical reason for that, too, because of how, you know, the hours that they had available to film at, you know, this is a this is a Fox building. I've been there. Actually, yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, then that makes that they make that part of the story. Like we have to film during night because we have to get people out of the building. <laughs> um, but as far as composition goes, I'm always interested to see things like the way have people standing in the room. Uh, there's one at the beginning. You see uh, Takagi, Ellis and Holly are on the far right and John's on the far left to right. show that he's very much not part of that group. He's been separated right, yeah. that way. And then they leave and then he and Holly are having a conversation, but they're on opposite sides of the screen. Like it's, it's pulled back pretty far. You can see they're a good 15 feet apart while they're having this conversation about, you know, I didn't miss my name though. That it's that scene, uh, which I think is just a brilliant way to show that not only are they, I mean, they're emotionally far apart as much as they are physically far apart. So it's just a really kind of a cool, obvious way that they're, they're speaking to us in cinematic language. It reminds me a lot of a shot. Did you ever see the score with uh, Robert De Niro, Edward Norton, uh, and Marlon Brando? It's been forever. There is a but. shot in that film that this reminds me very much of. Uh, Robert De Niro's girlfriend, I think, is played by, I can't remember the actress's name, but she's a flight attendant. And she comes home, and he's cooking dinner on one side of the screen, and she's in the bedroom, like, taking off her shoes and changing clothes on the other side of the screen. And they are at polar opposites. Like, if you, you could not pan and scan that shot mm-hmm. and get them both in there. And it it's the same thing. It sort of goes to to epitomize the the the, the gulf between them, and that's kind of what you, that shot reminds me of as well. Right. That, that's one that I noticed before I went back and watched Die Hard and was looking at it with that sort of critical eye and noticed that they were doing the same thing here. Yeah, and then I have to also mention because I love just seeing it every time is you get that great shot of of Al showing he shows up at Nakatomi and then they pan back and you get to see the price of gas. 
Right. Which lazy because it's like there's not even a spot for the dollar. It's right. like it's 74 cents for regular and 77 Those were for the unleaded. Days. Those were the days. But there's a great example too of 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 the triangle. They have it a couple of times. And uh the first one that you see is when the two Johnson show up and they're on opposite sides of yeah. uh of Dwayne Johnson and he's lower and they're up up high. And it's just kind of an interesting way to get establish that like how the much you know, they're taking over, right? He he's definitely been diminished. As he should be. And uh, the last triangle you had is when John enters the room uh, when Hans has her at gunpoint and like Eddie, the Huey Lewis look like guy is on the far left. And right. just a cool, cool way to stage yeah. that. Yeah, John McTiernan is not, does not get uh, enough credit as a director, in my opinion. Even though he has a very good reputation, I still don't think he gets enough credit as a director I, I because agree. of things like that. Yeah. The other couple of things that I wanted to point out, I could I could get into the weeds something fierce with this, but because <laughs> I loved it all so much. But I love Hans Gruber's reveal, the way the camera just dollies in on him as you guys are kind of just peeling off to left to the right, and then it gets to him and then it pulls back with him. It's right. Just, and this and this was cool. of course this was of course Rickman's first like Hollywood film. Yeah. And immediately it's almost it's almost like they gave him a star entrance because it was like here Hollywood, here's your new favorite person on the planet. Seriously. And, and that is my one nitpick. That is my one nitpick. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it out here. Later on it. in the film, later on in the film, uh, I believe his name is Curtis, the uh, the guy who was working downstairs, uh, working on the uh, cracking the uh, the codes on the, the the locks. He drives out in a an ambulance out of that van. Where is that ambulance when they're walking out of the van? <laughs> yeah, that would be an issue. That's the only gimme that this movie asks us to give it. I'll give it because everything else is perfect, but. It, it's so close to being 100% perfect, and the, that one thing. Uh, yeah, that's gonna bug me from now on, Jeff. Thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's what I do. <laughs> There's also some um, positive things. There's also a, like a lot of kind of almost walk and talk, almost like an Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm. uh, thing. Where the, you see at the beginning where where Holly's walking through, which predates that. I'm, I mean, like that's gonna be maybe a Tommy Shlami who directs most of. Sorkin stuff. Maybe he was influenced by that, but I, I pointed that. Oh, like oh my gosh, because I, I love that. He just keeps that again. Going back to the geography too, they're walking you through um, that floor, and you get to you see where everything is. Uh, and my last favorite thing, camera work is because I love Dutch angle so very much. There's a Dutch angle from almost the entire scene when John and Hans meet in person, and Hans is taking oh, yeah. on that British, that American accent. It's really obvious like the whole like oh my gosh yeah things are are not the way they they seem you're supposed to feel a little disoriented there and i just i just love the use because they both have they both they both have the other sort of on their toes yeah it's it's great yeah lots of fun and okay my last thing again i gotta mention it (laughs) i know so good hans's face in slow motion that zoom in because they they built a special camera rig i found in my research um, so that he would not come out of focus as he was falling. So what a great shot that it's done practically, right? You know, it, like the, he actually fell and, you know, the, the story goes that, you know, they were going to go on three and then he went on like two. They dropped him on one. They said one and then dropped yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. To get that actual authentic reaction. Not that they needed to do that because it is, it's Alan freaking Rickman. Come on. Yeah. That well, was his first movie. They didn't know, but yeah, he could have done it right. in his sleep. Come on. So, uh, Jeff, what about sound? What what stood out to you sound-wise? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I just finished watching the movie, and now I'm deaf. Um, <laughs> it, it's very loud. Yes, it but is. But not, not 
it's not loud, and I'm and I'm gonna invoke Michael Bay again, and I know a lot of people little people dump on him, but it's not loud in a Michael Bay way. It's loud because the explosions are appropriately loud. The gunshots would be as loud as they are in the movie, and it's it is perfect. Uh, the gunshots are loud. The dialogue you can you can hear all of the dialogue regardless. The the sound mix on this is really phenomenal, um, and. Even so much, even to go so far as to when when uh, he's walking across the glass and you can sort of hear it digging in, and then when he's, he's picking it out, you can sort of hear the as he as he pulls it out, you can sort of hear the the, the skin pulling back, and uh, yeah, between that and um, like I said, all of the all of the, the loud explosions along with the score is terrific. The use of Ode to Joy and Let It Snow in this in the mm-hmm. score throughout the score to remind us that this is happening at Christmas time is just great. And and again, all the all the the vocal sounds, the dialogue is great. All of the incidental noises, you know, the, the grunting and uh all of all of um, John McClane's yelling and everything is it's is it's just it's all on point. There's there's nothing I can say. When it like I said before, when it doesn't stand out, that's when you know it's good. And this does not stand out in a, in such a way that you're thinking that seems out of place. It, it's all, it all works. And the gunshots, again, I keep going back to how loud the gunshots were. That's what I noticed on my last viewing is they are like almost annoyingly loud and they would be, and they should be because it just sort of helps to raise the stakes uh, in, in this world. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you mentioned McTiernan being underrated. I think Michael Kamen also underrated. Oh. Absolutely. Um, his his soundtrack, the way he intermixes those themes, like you mentioned, uh, you also have, you know, get diegetic music. You got guys humming, whistling. Hans does it. Um, you got uh, Al does it, too. And it, it does. It just kind of <laughs> weaves it through this. And then you hear, you know, like Ode to Joy. You also hear it in like like um, minor keys and they just play with it. So it's like it's almost this daunting, you know, <laughs> mysterious, but also kind of foreboding Christmas music, which is but I just love that full statement of Old Joy when the when the vault opens. That's just yes. it's triumphant. But it, like it shouldn't be, but it kind of is. It is. Well, that's the, that's the thing about, it, and we'll get into it. But that's the other thing about the movie is the the, the score makes us complicit with the thieves because <laughs> we kind of do want them to get away with it because we kind of love Hans Gruber. Yeah, we kind of do. And, and all of his all of his henchmen are for the most part pretty well defined and have their own characteristics, and so you you kind of don't mind spending time with these people. Right. Uh, a couple other things that that jumped out to me this time is like I've never heard an elevator chime be so menacing. Right. But you when you hear it, you, like you just get your hair goes up, you're on the back of your neck, you're a little bit a little bit tense because something bad's gonna happen. Uh, and then this time I, I really noticed, like we talked about the the shoes and walking over the glass. When he kicks away the shoes that don't fit, there's this little stinger. That's like. That's going to be important later. There's some foreshadowing there, which is which is kind of fun. The camera pans down to it too, let you know exactly why why this is important. But it doesn't linger long enough that you're that you that it's obvious. Nope. It's just oh, this is what's happening. Here's a transition to whatever we're going to next. Yeah. But don't yeah, forget def- about this over here. Exactly. It, it pays to watch this movie again. And then you have some really interesting. Um, there's not really voiceover, but there is some just kind of weird television exposition, which reminded me a little bit of RoboCop. Yes. Uh, which is funny. And then they have kind of an ironic one where they're talking about the Helsinki syndrome <laughs> outright as they're Party pulling Ellis's. <laughs> That's funny too. Uh, they're pulling Ellis's body out of the, 
out of the office where he was killed as they're talking about how they're going to be bonding with the terrorists and right. write to them in prison and stuff like, nah, I don't know if you guys know what you're talking about. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a dark, there's a lot of dark humor in this movie and that's one of the things I respond to with it as well. Definitely. It's fun. It's just fun. Uh, which I know was one of the things McTiernan was he turned this down several times because he did not like, he thought it would be too intense and that it would just be depressing and, and, you know, too much. And because they were terrorists at the beginning, but, but when they right. become thieves, we like thieves in movies. We like to see that happen. We do. We kind of root for those guys, don't we? It's a heist and we like heist movies. We do. It just so happens that these, these guys, these, these guys performing the heist happen to be the bad guys. Exactly. So, uh, anything else for sound before we talk about the performances as well, the only other scene that kept, that sticks out to me is the one where Bruce Willis is on the ground or John McClane is on the ground in the boardroom and he's the guy shooting down through the, 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 the table at him and he's shooting up that one. That may be the loudest gunfire in the movie. And the, again, the, the Foley work is phenomenal because you can hear you hear the, the particle board from the uh, from the table breaking as they're going through it. So somehow that cuts through the uh, the gunfire as well. Like the 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 debris noise actually cuts through somehow. It's very subtle, but if you listen for it, it's there. Nice. So just just top notch work all around. Yeah, and I heard that actually that was so close to his head that Bruce Willis had had hearing damage from that too. So it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, those guns are loud. So I mean, I don't think anybody is anything other than stellar in their performances in this movie. I mean, I have everybody right in the sweet spot. I don't think there's. The movie is what it is. I think everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. I don't know anybody. In. They are. There are a few melodramatic moments. Um, Alexander Gudinov, when he finds about his brother's dead <laughs> and Hart Bachner as Ellis is, is pretty over the top, but again, it's the eighties. You That's knew true. this guy, this, yeah. this, this was a real guy and he was the only one. And, and I thought it was smart that they killed him in the way that they did because it's a brutal murder. But because uh, after they kill Takagi, Takagi, you're thinking, OK, these guys are real. And after they kill Ellis, you kind of don't blame them. You kind of think I, I would have probably done the same thing. <laughs> yeah, he's a but I love but I love that that uh, McLean still tried to save his life, even though he didn't. He kind of detested him. And same with William Atherton. He's almost a caricature, but he's such a pro that it doesn't bother me here. It It, it works again that we know this guy. Yeah, we do. And he's, yeah, he's kind of riffing on his character from Ghostbusters a little bit. Exactly. He 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 said for a long time he could not walk down the street in any city because people just hated him. Yeah. Because they knew him from Ghostbusters, they knew him from this, they knew him from Real Genius. Yeah. He, he just he does that that part so well. Um. But uh. But you you know talking about everybody being in the sweet spot. I mean, Alan Effing Rickman and Willis have they they've never been better. They were. Yeah. Rickman, I I would say Rickman was never better than this, but that's because he was always this good. He was always amazing. And Willis, again, what is the thing with like if, if Bruce Willis in the movie, if he has hair, it's probably going to be good. Or is it vice versa? <laughs> Do I have that backwards? Um, uh, this might be the last one. Well, he has hair in the second one, too. But I think as he yeah. gets balder, they get. Well, I don't know. Because it goes full circle. I don't know. What right. Exactly. But yeah, he's he's never been better. Uh, the scene where he's telling Powell, uh, you know, what he wants him to tell his wife if they don't come out of this is is heartbreaking. But you believe it, you buy it, mm -hmm. just as much as you buy him being uh, uh, being snarky to uh, to Hans and saying I was always you know always partial to Roy Rogers and, and things like that. But yeah, everybody, 
is is so is is great. And I tell you, there's 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 one performance that I there are two actually two moments that I want to that I want to point out that are very small and subtle. But th- at the very beginning of the movie, the guy who's telling him to make fists with his toes. Yep. First of all, that that actor's name is Robert Lesser, and he's one of my favorite character actors. Um, he's in a trifecta of movies in the, in a two year period. He was in this. He played a sleazy agent in Ernest Saves Christmas the same year. So those two Christmas classics that he's in. And the year before, he had a small role in the Monster Squad in 1987. So he gets a lot of play around the holidays in my in my house. Sure. But I love that scene because, again, he's just kind of a pro. You the, these are these are these are types that they cast here. And the other one is and I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but he's the the Asian guy who's part of Hans's crew who is guarding one of the doors and he's looking, there's a snack bar there mm-hmm. and he stops, he looks around and he grabs a candy bar and starts eating it. Yeah. The act, the actor ad libbed that. And David Tui, the screenwriter said that actor, his character lived longer because I laughed so hard when I saw that, that I changed <laughs> the script to make sure he got killed near the end of the movie. Yeah. I heard that too. Yeah. Al Leung. I had that. Al Leung. Thank you. Yep. I had that. I had that myself for under props for when he okay. grabs that lobby candy. Yeah. No genius. Yeah. Like this is it, how it, you it, it get people to like you. Like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so great so I love yeah and like you said everybody everybody is 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 doing exactly what they need to do here uh bonnie bedelia as as the wife is it bonnie bedelia mm-hmm. yeah bonnie bedelia. for some reason it, that didn't sound right when i said it but yeah bonnie bedelia is is great uh you believe everything that she does you you understand why she was with john mcclain for so long but you also understand why it didn't work out because she's too smart for it right and uh, you also understand that she will if, if things had gone differently, she might've ended up running this company. And, and I, but you contrast her with, uh, with Ellis and she's doing it the right way. And I just, I, it, I, again, I could go on about the acting here, but it's top to bottom. Um, freaking, uh, Al Powell, uh, Reginald Vell Johnson. Mm-hmm. How great was he? Yeah. He's got that monologue about the kid, uh, that, that, that he shot. And, and you know, everybody has yeah. a moment. This is this is like this is like an ensemble play that is just being played out because it's it's in one it's in one uh, one setting. This this you could do you could conceivably do a stage version of Die Hard with you these could. characters and they each have their own moment. It would be a great showcase. Yeah, and I love that you brought up the fist with your toes. That was like the first thing I wrote because. You know, that pays off. You talked about that earlier. Like every yep. little thing pays off. Like that's why he doesn't have his shoes on. And then we have the scene with the glass and all of that stuff. So it's not wasted. None of this is wasted. It's not the the script notes podcast, the uh, Craig Mazin and John August. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, won't be the last time I reference it, I'm sure. Uh, they did a deep dive. They did a whole episode on just this script. And it was it was phenomenal to listen to because these are two guys that know what they're doing. And they were talking about just the intricacy of the script and how everything pays off and it, it's almost it almost seems like a paint by number script but it's only because they got to they got to the end and they said okay how do we they they sort of reverse engineered it i feel like the the writers that they said we got here how did we get here okay to get him to this point we've got to do this to get him there we've got to do this and so everything was just so meticulously planned out that it's it it is it's it's just like a it's like a puzzle right so I had a hard time writing dialogue for this because pretty much I wanted to put everything Alan Rickman said. Right. And then I would try and read it and it wouldn't be nearly as good as him. So I will leave that. <laughs> Except yes. for I had one. <laughs> there was one when uh, it's the scene where he's talking he's talking to um, 
Uh, he's talking to Theo. Theo's downstairs and he's waiting like the last lock I can't unlock. And, uh, and he says, and, and he's, there's this switch in the middle. He says, it's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles. And he's all happy. And then he turns super fast, looks at Carl and says, hunt that little shit down and get those detonators. And it's just like completely just 180 where he's charming and laughing and kind of silly almost. And then it's just like, he's ruthless. He's oh, absolutely. It's, it's so great. It's and, and that, that's what he did. He, and, and, the, and Rickman always made it look easy. You never caught him acting and he always made it look so easy, but he always, um, he also always looked like he was just having a ball. Um, I just watched uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves for the first time in a long time, a couple of nights yeah. ago. Uh, Pam had never seen it and she's a huge Alan Rickman fan. And at the end she's like, okay, Die Hard was my favorite. Then Galaxy Quest was my favorite. This may actually be my favorite Alan Rickman. Uh, him as uh, the sheriff of Nottingham. But uh, yep. this, the, every, like you said, everything about this, he's just, he's oily, but you're not repulsed by him. You want to spend time with him, but you also want to see him get what's coming to him. And of course, you know, there's the yippee ki mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, is one of the greatest lines in cinema history. Uh, Absolutely. In my opinion. It is some of the best dialogue in any action movies ever. And the, the fact that most of Willis's lines all sound ad-libbed is a, te- is a credit to the writer as well as the actor. When I say he's never been better, it all just seems tossed off. He and Rick and both, it all just seems tossed off. But when you stop and think about it, there's there's a lot of really great work going on there. I agree. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought up the UPK because you have to include that. Since it's a family to. show, we didn't have to drop the F-bomb, which is a nice thing about Live Free or Die Hard. You can watch the PG version where you don't actually get to hear it. Right. Um, but I do also, I, I will give as much as he is a jerk and is made fun of throughout this movie and pretty much everything he's in. Paul Gleason as Dwayne Robinson has one of the funniest lines in this <laughs> film. Going to need some more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> Just throw his hands in the air. He's, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And again, he's, and again he was a pro. Uh, you, you never caught him acting. You believed nope. everything you did. You're going to need some more FBI guys. <laughs> So good. You know, this is a moment of just, you know, it's brutal and like, oh man, everything's going. And he's just, eh, let's throw in a joke. Well, so. and I love, and I love Al's commenting on everything. After after the FBI guy shows up, he just looks over at him and he goes, want a breath mint? Oh my gosh. So funny. It'd be <laughs> so funny. Um, speaking of performance though, just scrolling down to, to body language, um, facial expressions, there was oh, so many good things. Uh, just again, I'm going. I'm just looking at really. It's Willis and, and Rickman more than anything. Um, John's panicked face in the barely open door, which is basically the movie poster. Yeah, where he's kind of figuring out. We had that. You talked about it earlier, where it's a lot of it's his perspective. Like you see him looking mm-hmm. out in the hall, and you just see his point of view, and it's just like the camera's jerking side to side as he's desperately trying to find out what's happening. We're hearing the shotgun or the the machine guns, but we don't see anything because he doesn't see anything. So good. Uh, well, and the casting of of. Bruce Willis, I think, is what makes this movie because can you so it's a, it's an action movie in the late 80s. Can you imagine what this movie would have been had it been Sylvester Stallone or Arnold, or Arnold Schwarzenegger in that role? It'd be forgettable. It'd just be it'd one be more forgettable. In the pile. Yeah, it would just be a loud action movie. Bruce Willis is an everyman. You know, he's missing some of his hair. He's stuck with no shoes and a tank top the entire for the majority of the movie. And which I have a story about the tank top when we get to costumes. Oh, I'm so um, and and the, the movie just would not work. As great as Alan Rickman is, Alan Rickman's performance is only as good as it is because he has Bruce Willis to play off of and vice versa. You know, you get these two, you know, Bruce Willis, I would never call him a master thespian, but in the right role, he could, he was better than anybody. 
Sure. And Alan Rickman was better than anybody full stop. Um, but yeah, that that's exactly it. You're, you're absolutely right. That there was that one. And, uh, you know, we already, already talked about the, the scene where Aling was looking at the candy and he just, you see him look <laughs> around and you see the thought cross his mind Yep. and it's hilarious. And, um, we haven't even mentioned Argyle yet, but that is a character that is problematic for a lot of people, but I always loved him. Yeah. And he's another one. It's a small character, but he's got an arc of his own. And again, everything he does is real. You know, John sits in the front with him. and He's oh, sorry. The girl's off this week and he has to throw his trash in the back. And he says, I used to drive a cab. People expect a little chit chat. I believe that guy was a, was a cab driver. 100 percent. I've yeah. never had a doubt. Everybody in this movie should have had a career like Bruce Willis's. And it's a shame that most of them didn't. Yeah. I also had um, for facial expressions. I have John's face when the C4 goes off and it starts coming back up the <laughs> elevator shaft. Because that feels real to me. Yeah, like, exactly. It's not like he's done that before. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, he, he panics and he, and he runs. It's the exact same expression any of us would have when you see that coming. Exactly. And and, that, and then when he uh, there was another point when he says he's um, when he when he's he's throwing the he's go, he's about to swing off the building and he is he is terrified. He is absolutely terrified. He's not sure it's going to work. And again, you wouldn't see that with an a quote unquote action star. Nope. in that role and that's again that's why it works i was looking researching that scene too and and uh I, that was one of the very first scenes they did which i think oh, is wow. interesting and it didn't go well at first and i but i what i read was they they thought maybe he had died and they had to make sure he would <laughs> which is funny and i was like this is why they started it f- with that scene first because then you wouldn't have to do reshoots so you just do that scene until somebody lives and then you can keep that guy right <laughs> it's a little dark but I was like, that's the only reason I can think of why you would do that first. It's incredibly dangerous. Right. Yeah, if you're going to have to recast, you don't want to have to shoot. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good, a good note for any aspiring filmmakers out there who are listening. Do your most dangerous stunt first. Uh, there's a couple of great Rickman facial expressions I noticed differently this time because he's so smooth through most of it. Like that that one piece of dialogue I mentioned earlier where he kind of he kind of shifts. There's two things where there's like this little chink in the armor. Uh, the first time he notices that that uh, uh, that the detonators are missing, he's not quite he's not afraid, but he might be a little bit worried. You can see on his face. Mm-hmm. And then when he finds out that John's from New York, when they're having that conversation face to face, like there's this look of shock on his face. Like this guy's not just like some security guard or some local guy. What the heck is happening? What is he doing here? here? Well, and when he realizes who he is, there's that look of realization on his face. Oh, yeah. And and again, it's all. He's not doing very much outwardly, but you see everything behind his eyes. And it's again, he's one of those actors that just he makes me mad as an as an actor because he makes it look so easy. With he makes it look effortless. And I guarantee yeah. you there were every wheel in his mind was turning in every scene in this movie. And and that's that's a great example of one of them. Yeah. When he realizes a who he's talking to and when he says uh, he looks up and he looks, he's in his clay bill clay and he just slips into that persona yeah. right then just end it oh it's so good yeah he's doing so much of that with, the, with his face i know it's like i feel like i need to get a, an alan rickman marathon going he played rasputin in a, a, a like a thing it was a bbc production that is not Ooh. available you cannot it was on dvd at one point or vhs but you cannot find it anywhere and i'm dying to get my hands on a copy of that can you imagine Yes, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I would love to see that. I think it was from like 1985 or something like that. 
Wow. So uh, we're down to costumes, hair and makeup. He misses his shoes. That's my first thing I had. And then you wanted to talk about the tank top. I would love to hear what you had for the tank top. Okay, so I have a friend who works as a screenwriter in L.A. His girlfriend, she may be his fiance. They may actually be married now. That tells you how close we are. Uh, <laughs> is a is a costumer. And at one point, there was like, I don't know if you would call it an exhibit, but there was like a, an installation of the costumes from Die Hard. That they were specifically his um his tank tops nice. and they told the story of the movie through his tank tops. There were something like 15 or 20 different tank tops that had different levels of soiling, different layers of blood, different layers of, of grime and dirt on them. And you could go start to finish and see the, basically the plot of the film through these. And it was just, it was absolutely blew my mind. He, I didn't get to see it, but he sort of online gave us kind of a, a rundown of it. And he showed a few of the photos and it was just amazing. And uh, he I was jealous of him because he had his girlfriend with him who was explaining all of it to him every step of the way because it's something she had like studied intensely. Nice. And it was just absolutely amazing. And that's again, when you talk about the what makes us a classic and it's the fact that there was a, the attention to detail did not stop at any level. Even this tank top, it was we want to make sure that we have the appropriate that this this matches the last scene. We know this is this is scene five shot a so this next one if we go back to this one we have to mark this one to know which one to go back to and it just it's flawless all the way through and it, it and that again that's just one more uh level of 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 attention that was paid to this film that just that there's a reason that it's that it's the classic that it is i love that you know that because i'm watching this and going that's one t-shirt it just gets progressively dirtier nope but no it's like a whole crap load of t-shirts Yep. That's awesome. Movie magic, people. So I have a question. What is it weird to you that Hans Gruber is dressed really nice in a suit and the rest of his crew is all just very casually dressed? Because that's really stood out like really strange to me today. Not at all. Oh, by the way, the Rasputin film was actually 1996. So it's even a bigger crime that is not readily available. Um, Yeah, it didn't bother me at all because these guys... Who knows? You think about like a band, guys that play together in a band. They typically don't hang out when they're not touring, so they just come together to tour. And I kind of feel like this is the group he's put together. Ah. And this is exactly what he would wear. And this is the persona he's trying to put across. He's trying to convince him that he is this posh, very well-educated, very uh, erudite, European, uh, uh, you know, uh, terrorist. Mm Mm-hmm. Very intelligent terrorist, and the rest of the guys, they're you know they're they're the crew, they're the they're they're his crew, so it, it never bothered me at all, uh, especially because each character, again, their costume matched their personality. You had the guy that was up front, that had the big thick Texas accent that's wearing cowboy boots, and he's got the mullet and everything and the big forehead. Yep, perfect. Alexander Gudnov and his brother are both dressed like Euro trash, which is what they were. Yep, uh, or I guess Scandinavian trash. Um, but, uh, and, uh, then you had, I can't remember, was it Courtney B. Vance? That was the, no, it wasn't Courtney B. Vance. Uh, Clarence Gilliard is Theo. Clarence, thank you. Clarence Gilliard. Um, the, the, the C threw me. Um, you know, he's got, he's got the glasses. So you, which is what you expect from a computer nerd. And he's dressed sort of very unassumingly. And can we talk about an entrance, his entrance when he's talking about 
the basketball game. Yep. And he comes in and just shoots a Gabri nonchalantly. Two points. Yep. Tells you everything you need to know about that character. He's a sociopath, but he's very funny. And again, we like to keep, we like to spend time with him. So no, it did never bother me at all because if they were all dressed alike, it wouldn't make sense because that doesn't match their, doesn't match their characters. See, I love that. Great explanation. Yeah, I, I think bothered is too strong a word anyway, but it, it definitely sets him apart, not only from this crew, but like really from action movie villains at all, right? Like we hadn't really seen this kind of like he's not he's not a a physical match for John. He's he's just infinitely smarter than him. Right. But 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 yeah, and that makes him even more dangerous. Exactly. Because he's planned everything out and he's thought he's thought of every eventuality except for John McLean. He is the monkey in the wrench, as he calls himself. That's a great line. Flying the ointment, monkey in the wrench. Um, anything else uh, with performance before we move down to, to setting and design that you want to talk about? No, I, I think I've probably uh, swung that well dry. Although I will say, and I've talked about every single person in the movie, every single person in the movie. Uh, I think it's Rick Dukeman that is the the guy that they're trying to get to shut off the grid. He's he's upset about it. The guy who's ringing up Powell at the convenience store is just so perfectly cast that I assume that guy works at that convenience store and probably yeah. is still working there. Is the whoever cast this thing did such a good job that you know who everybody is. Robert Davi and uh, I, I can't ever think of the other actor's name who played the you know, agents Johnson and Johnson. Perfect. And yep. they put Robert Davi in that cap, the baseball cap that it turns around backwards. That's exactly what that douchebag would wear. <laughs> In that scenario. <laughs> exactly. It, oh, God, it's perfect. I love this uh, movie. So good. Uh, so uh, mainly the setting, so setting the design, mainly around Fox Plaza. You said you've been there in Century City. Yeah, a couple of times. I'm, I'm so jealous. Yeah, once at night and uh, once in the day when, when we were in uh, Anaheim or for celebration back in May, uh, I took a day and tooled around L.A. and and drove up there and got out and, uh, and actually uh, – I think I yelled yippee mother hmm. But I couldn't get out and go in because it's 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 still a working building even though there's not anybody really there. But I, I couldn't really park and get out and go in without getting, you know, kicked off, kicked out of the building. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's very easy to find. And uh, you go in there now and it's kind of dead. There's not a whole lot that goes on there. But, yeah, it's it's very easy to find. Just have like a plaque or something. That, that's, I think that's... there probably is somewhere. Yeah. But uh, I just didn't get out to see it to look at it. That's so cool. Uh, set decoration. I love the line about the limo amenities, CD, CB, TV, telephone, full bar, VHS. Yeah. VHS. <laughs> CD Excellent. and VHS. They are the height yeah. of the height of technology. And we do. The thing that really stuck out to me this time was all the wood and the stone in the Nakatomi building. And at first I thought, well, that's really dated, very eighties. And then I did some more research on that. And really what they're doing is they're trying to, do like an homage to the the falling water house, the Franklin Wright designed house. Right. So I, I was like, that. oh, okay, so that's what it is. It's it's dated and snooty. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and again, you talk about the set decoration. Going back to what I was saying about that that pinup calendar, that that is like a signpost to let you know where you are in the building. Yep. Here's one thing though that we haven't talked about that I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, when, when, when McLean shows up and he, uh, at the building at the beginning and he goes in and he says, I'm here to, uh, he says, uh, I'm here to see Holly McLean. He says, well, the guy said, just look it up on the machine there. So he mm-hmm. looks it up and he says, uh, such and such, whatever he goes, yeah, 30th floor. They're the only ones still in the building. If they're the only ones still in the building, why didn't he just tell him to go up there to the 30th floor? 
so the movie can happen so we can see right. that it's holly janeiro but no i noticed and, that and too. No, every exactly time i watch right. them, it's the only one it's the only ones in the building you say that yep. then why are you making him look in the stupid dated computer that's i why. assume it's a security thing so he has to say he has to actually find a name Ooh, so that he's that's not good. just saying i'm some some yahoo that's gonna go up and crash the party I, i'm giving the movie that but anyway there you go yeah that's the end universe reason yes it's but yeah, but, you're, it, so I can, but the falling water thing I can definitely see, and I, and I love that they had it under construction so that they were less beholden to the, the, the less beholden to making everything look like an office building or an office floor. Mm-hmm. And again, again, it gives them a lot, a lot more stuff to play with as far as uh, scenes and, and settings. And yeah, I just love the fact that they just use their under construction building, their own building in the movie, yeah. and like have that be part of the plot that it's under construction. Well, probably saved on. Uh, they probably they probably rented it to themselves and made money on the deal. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, some other great props in this one. We talked about the computer system, super dated, but that's fine. Um, it's also very specific to to Nakatomi, so that kind of works. The picture frame with John and his family is massively important as a prop. I love how she puts it down in anger um, right. at the beginning, and then it's just down this whole time. And then they have that great reveal when Hans figures out. Uh, their relationship i've always liked the uh the flash grenades they kind of look like oreos to me or maybe ding dongs those are oh weird. yeah like hockey pucks a little bit yeah yeah you'd think me as a former fat kid would have gone with ding dongs but they, <laughs> I, I always went with hockey pucks for some reason <laughs> um let's see i mentioned the lobby candy the walkie talkies that's another just crucial thing i mean you have this this whole thing where you don't you, know, you have your your main character and your antagonist that don't spend a lot of time together most of it is done over walkie-talkie and that's yeah. that's awesome it is and, and they're and they're able the way the editing is done they're able to um they're able to build that rapport and make it seem like they really are connecting and who knows maybe that i if i had to guess i would guess that each actor was on the other end of the line when they were recording those scenes just out of courtesy i, I don't know that for a fact but that's that's how it feels because especially he and and reginald bell johnson have such a good rapport and good chemistry that you have to imagine that they did but who knows and this is another movie that would not work in the age of cell phones right would be so easy for everything else to get resolved i love that nothing wrong with that you can let's have some more period pieces set in 1988 so we can get rid of that exactly uh, I'm looking through characters. I don't think there's anybody we haven't talked about. We just raved about everybody for like on purpose it's been well-deserved. They're great. I, I think so. Yeah. I think I, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else other than uh, the guy playing uh, the, the boss, Joe Takaji, uh, that, that guy's great. He's, you know, that he's very, he's very warm and inviting, but you also get the, the impression that he probably is a pretty shrewd and, and, and ruthless businessman at the same time. Yeah. But that he does care about his people. Makes the joke about the uh, Pearl. We didn't get you with Pearl Harbor. So Pearl Harbor. Was... <laughs> tape decks. Tape decks, yeah. <laughs> well, and of course, we have, you know, when uh, when uh, McLean arrives at the airport, he's like, California. We never, never, never <laughs> lets us forget that he's from New York and these California people are weird. Yep. <laughs> and I, the only thing I really wish, I wish that that big teddy bear had come into play at some point, had been had been a foil for something at some point. Because Argyle is just sitting in the yeah. back seat with it. Yeah. Well, here's That's a question. Like, John has two kids. Are they going to share that one teddy bear? Probably. They're little kids. I, I don't know. You maybe I, well, should you get also two get the, smaller bears. You also get the impression that he's also maybe not the most uh, 
uh, attentive of, ah. of husbands or parents. So it's possible that he forgot that he had two kids. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or maybe that's for Holly. <clears throat> maybe that's what he thinks is going to win her over as a giant. There you go. Well, spoiler alert for, I don't, you, you do know this, right? For Die Hard 5, that it's his son that's in that one? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, so yeah, we get to see I both of them that. as adults. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so Hero's Journey then. I had, there were some interesting things that I found uh, for this one where there was one reviewer that had written uh, that the, the, the feet thing was like stigmata, which I thought was an interesting take. Mm. That, that he's kind of this is his penance through physical punishment and that's kind of his his arc going through you know this redemption thing baptism through fire and that was kind of interesting it's interesting i don't think it's necessarily unfounded but i also don't know that it's necessarily something that was conscious i think it was probably just hey this is one more obstacle we can throw in this guy's path but again yeah. who's to say i it, it's not without merit at all i can definitely see that yeah, I don't know if I subscribe to that either. I just thought that was kind of an interesting take. I, I tend to think it's more just like we're just going to put this guy through the ringer, right? Yeah, you know, he's not the you know he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger that we had seen, or or even Stallone, right? It's he's going to be damaged. It's going to be a lot harder for him to get through this, which makes him more relatable. Exactly, and you know you you talk about the hero's journey. He, I guess he is sort of a reluctant hero because he doesn't want to have to get involved, but he knows there's nothing else but for him to get involved, but it's the last thing he wanted to do. And he does, he tries to get, he tries to get the authorities here to take care of it. He tries to do the right thing, but when he realizes he has to take care of this on his own, that's when he just sort of is, again, he's a very reluctant hero. Which moves me down to um, like the first of my, first of my final thoughts, I'll just mention it here was how much better would it have been if the police or the FBI doesn't even show up? Like, do they actually help at all? Well, they they I mean, have Al to does. show up. Well, the Al does. They have to show up because that was part of Gruber's plan. They're right. the ones who had to shut off the grid for that final. Uh, the because he was going to call them regardless. Yeah, his plan was to call them regardless. They just got there True. earlier before he planned them to. So, yeah. but no, I think it was great because I, you know, it it sort of uh, it, you you talked about it being sort of like RoboCop in that regard, and it is a little bit of a satire on the militarization of the police. Because they get this this big tank coming through that they're going to bash in. Send then, in the car. You know, and they send in the car. <laughs> and uh, then they, you know, they start burning alive inside of it. You know, they're, you talk about, uh, you know, being, uh, you, you're trapped by your own hubris. Um, and uh, yeah, I know, I, I think uh, they, they had to show up. Um, and I think they, they were as much of a foil for McLean as the terrorists were in a lot of ways, even more so. Agreed. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that uh, th- pretty much the legacy of Die Hard was, and it's not so much now, but for pretty much the entire next decade, it was the blueprint for just about every other action movie that came out. Yeah, you know, Speed Die was Hard Die Hard on a on a Die Hard on a bus, which yep. was one of the better one of the better uh, knockoffs, which I believe was also John McTiernan, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Jan de Bont. Um, yeah, Jan de Bont. Second one. That was it. Yeah, you know, he did the yeah, he did the first one. So it's got the it's got the DNA of that. Yeah, I think he did he did both of them actually. Um, I really liked Under Siege. I think that may be my favorite Die Hard knockoff. Die Hard on a Battleship. Or There's Cliffhanger. Die Hard on a Mountain. Well, Executive Decision is another one. That's Die Hard in a Plane yep. with Kurt Russell 
as the in the in the uh, the Bruce Willis role. Only he's in a tuxedo most of the time. Really underrated action movie. A lot of fun. So I have the my my one gripe about that movie though is I went in expecting it to be a Steven Seagal movie. I don't know why I thought that was, cause he was well, in because he was because he was featured heavily in the promotions and he dies five minutes in, which is what made me like it even more because I hate Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that makes sense because I was rooting for him. And then I was like, oh, no, this is a bait and switch. OK, yeah, no, it's a that, Kurt Russell's that, film. That bugged me. I may I could probably watch that again. I do enjoy Kurt Russell I mean, as hey, look at that segue for our next film. Um, He's good, too. I like him, too. Oh, two more. Passenger 57. Wesley Snipes, Die Hard on Always Bet on Black. There's a, I've that. never seen that, but there's apparently a shot in that where he looks directly into the camera. <laughs> I have not seen and it they either. Didn't, they didn't cut it. I missed that one. And uh, Air Force One also, which is, I love that movie. I, oh, that's I, a great movie. I'd like to do that yeah. one as well. Wolfgang Peterson, yeah. Get off my plane. Yeah, just, oh my gosh. So good. Gary Oldman is a bad guy? Stop it. Uh, what else, anything else you have for final thoughts? I have one more, but I want to give you a chance to, to jump in and see if you had anything else you wanted to mention that we have. No, thought? that's all I want to mention. I'll just say, I, I say this a lot on uh, a variation on this a lot on star Wars splash page, but if you haven't seen this die hard, why do you hate movies? <laughs> right. If, if you have seen it, go watch it again at Christmas time or anytime. Bruce Willis has said unequivocally, it's not a Christmas movie. I still watch it at Christmas because I want to watch it all the time. And that's just as good an excuse as any. There you go. Well, that I mean, that was the last thing I was going to say was it. I tend to, I'm, I'm on the, the side of it is a Christmas movie. I and think just any it, excuse to watch it. And Christmas <laughs> is as good an excuse as any. Yeah. Really? That kind of comes out that way. But like, I, I, I enjoy having the argument for fun. You're like, look how we, you know, he's separated from his family and, well, and oh, here's the thing. Here's here's what makes it a Christmas. Movie. Here's what makes it a Christmas movie. Yeah. The the fact that it's Christmas is integral to the plot because it is a Christmas party. Although, yep. why are they having a Christmas party on Christmas Eve so they can't be home with their families? Horrible. Have the same issue with the Santa Claus, the first Santa Claus movie. Uh, but uh, the fact that it is Christmas, that's that's why they don't want to cut the power. And. That's that's why they have trouble uh, getting anybody to respond because it's Christmas and they think it's, there's a bunch of crackpots. And that's why he's coming out there. He's coming out there for Christmas. So it, it actually is. It is uh, central to the plot that it happened at Christmas. That's all I'm going to say. You heard it here, folks. But let us hear uh, if you you know, guys, let us know. Do, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I may have to put up a poll. I think I will. Um, after this releases, just to see what our audience thinks, because. I'm, I'm very curious to see what the, uh, what the I'm begging it'll be right is. at 50, 50 <laughs> leaning, leaning slightly to the side of Christmas. Yep. You're probably right. Oh, well, I'm still interested. I'm still going to do it. So, uh, Jeff, why, uh, before we get out of here, anything new coming from Marvin dog media or your, uh, star Wars splash page, what, anything you want to plug? Oh, uh, well, no, just, uh, you know, keep, keep listening. Um, we uh, Marvin Dog Media. We've got we've got the pilot episode that uh, comes out every other week. Uh, the Saturday morning supercast that comes out every other week. Those come out on Tuesdays. So any Tuesday, you're either going to get the pilot episode or Saturday morning supercast. Rather, uh, Star Wars Splash Rage comes out every Wednesday. Uh, the, uh, the latest episode we had a couple of really good books. The end of the Obi Wan Kenobi uh, miniseries that they did a five issue miniseries that is just some phenomenal writing. The fourth issue is. Um, a heart of darkness slash apocalypse now tale. I mean, even 
even the cover and the just the the, the story. It's when I was reading, I'm like, this is Heart of Darkness. This is this is Joseph Conrad. Uh, it's it's great. Uh, talking toys. We just did every October. We do we have to do a toy related to monsters of some sort. So we did a show about the Monster Force toy line, which I was not familiar with, but which is actually very cool. Uh, so go check that out if you want to see the Wolfman and Dracula as uh, superheroes and supervillains. It's kind of fun. Uh, other than that, that's yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. Oh, good. And like we'll have links to all that in the in the show notes. So check that out, guys. I've I've been I told Jeff before we started recording that I've been mainlining the uh, the pilot episode. There's so many good things in there. So thank you. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Those that's that's one of the sh- one of the few shows that I record that I do sometimes go back and listen to episodes because I just like the topic. I'm just a huge TV geek. Uh, but yeah, we and we we do we have a lot of fun, and I like listening to my friends give me a hard time. So that's always fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps us get the word out about the podcast. If you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. And one last thing, our next episode will be a review of Tombstone. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Tombstone. We'll share it on the next episode. 